So, what I wonder about this story is, is I wonder about the other disciples. I've heard this passage preached on several times, and in, in my recollection, at least, the, the sermons that stick in my mind are the ones that talked about Peter. And it's actually kind of remarkable that so many sermons do talk about Peter. Um, this event is actually recorded in three of the four biographies of Jesus. It's in Matthew, it's in Mark, and it's in John. But the part about Peter is only in one of them. It's in the part we just read from Matthew. So it's, it's interesting to me that, that you know, it, Jesus walking on the water is not interesting enough for people like me to preach on it. So we, we gravitate instead toward the passage where Peter walks on the water too. And I don't know why that is. Um, I think at some level we've kind of categorized Jesus differently. We don't really believe he's a real human like us. We think he's some kind of a, a demigod, and so of course he can walk on water. But when Peter walks on water, that's really interesting. So I don't know why that, why that is. Why it is we tend to, to, to divert our focus away from Jesus and onto, the, onto Peter. But, but what I'd like to do is I'd like to talk about the other disciples, because I wonder how they felt. I wonder what it was like being one of those disciples sitting in the boat when Peter said that. You know, you probably rolled your eyes and you probably thought, well, there's Peter, you know, foot and mouth disease Peter again, doing what only Peter does. But then he got out of the boat and he walked on the water. Now, we know after they got in the boat, we know that they worshipped Jesus and they said he was the son of God. I cut that off because I'm not even interested in what happened afterwards. I want to know what was it like in that moment, in that moment when the disciples said, that could have been me. I could have been the one who said, Lord, if it's you, command me and I'll come to you. And I missed that opportunity. I wonder what it was like being one of those disciples. Have you ever had an opportunity that just was right there and you could have taken it and, and you didn't? You know, my first career was in the, in the technology business. And back in the early 80s, uh, 1981, a man named Gary Kindall, who none of you know, he went for a flight in his airplane. And some of you have airplanes, some of you fly some of you are learning to fly 747s, I guess. Um, but Gary Kendall went for a flight in his airplane. And he left some people from IBM waiting. He said, you know, they, they said, well, we thought we had a meeting. And he just didn't make it that day. He didn't feel like going to the meeting. And so they turned from, from uh, Silicon Valley. They went up to, to uh, Seattle and they bought an operating system from Bill Gates instead. And it became MS-DOS. And then that became Windows. And the reason you've heard of Bill Gates is because Gary Kendall went for a flight in his airplane. He had an opportunity to meet with the representatives from IBM. And he went for a flight in his airplane. He turned down the opportunity. Back in 1962, a man named Mike Smith got an audition from the Beatles. They came in to his studio. They played 15 songs. And he said he'd get back to them. And when he finally did get back to them, he said... The Beatles have no future in the music industry. He had the opportunity to sign the Beatles to his label, and he missed it. I think all of us can relate to, to decisions like that, maybe not as grand, maybe not as, as uh, tremendous mistakes as those, but I think a lot of us can think of decisions that have been right there for us to take, an opportunity that was facing us, and we just didn't. You know, the timing wasn't right or, you know, we're concerned about this other thing and, and we just didn't do it. You know, we, uh, we were thinking about a career change and this kind of 
door kind of opened up over here and we thought about it and we thought about it and then finally, you know, we just decided no. Or maybe it was something, somebody offered us a job and we could have, we could have taken it. It would have been a step up, but it would have come with some cost and we, we thought about it and we, we ultimately just decided no, let's not do that. Maybe it wasn't anything to do with work. Maybe it was something you wanted to do. You, you always wanted to, to play the piano and, and you're thinking, you know, I should take this class. You know, the, the timing is right. I, you know, my schedule is clear enough. I could actually take this class. But for whatever reason, you didn't do it. You didn't, you didn't take that opportunity. And now it would be, you know, difficult to kind of try to repeat that. Maybe it's somebody you need to ask out on a date or somebody you, you should have asked out on a date. You know, there's a story, uh, Jack Welch, when he was the head of General Electric, he used to tell a story about how he and his wife went for a ride across country. They were taking some time off, and they, they went back to her hometown, and uh, they went to the gas station, and uh, they, got, they got some gas. And when they drove away, his wife started laughing. And he said, why are you laughing? He says, well, the guy, the guy at the gas station, I used to date him. And so Jack Welch said, well, you know, I bet you're pretty glad now that you, you married me instead of him, because... Otherwise, you'd be married to a gas station attendant instead of a corporate CEO. And she says, no, actually, I was laughing because I was thinking if I had married him, he'd be the CEO and you'd be working in a gas station. (laughs) You know, you know, our lives are filled with these kind of what would have happened if, you know, and some of them, you know, it's like we we, it's okay, it's no big deal. But some of them, you know, we do kind of wonder what would have happened if I had asked her out. What would have happened if I had taken that job, if I had signed up for that class? How could things have been different? And if you've ever been in one of those situations, if you've ever been sitting in the boat and you see the person next to you take the opportunity and you wonder, why don't I? Then there's, there's a reason. And, and more than, than that reason, there's, there's hope. I'm going, to give you, I'm going to give you two kinds of hope. The first kind of hope is just kind of worldly hope. But I, I'm also going to talk about how stewardship, the, the idea of stewardship actually opens up some possibilities that wouldn't be open for you if you're just going to approach this problem from a worldly perspective. You may have forgotten we're in a stewardship. We're actually concluding a stewardship sermon. And um, I, I talk about stewardship. And if you grew up in a church, if you spend a lot of time in church, you know this is where the pastor asks you to make a commitment to support the work of the church. And so I would get drummed out of the union if I didn't do that. So so here goes. Um, we want you to join the uh, we want you to join um, uh, the the rest of us in supporting this church. Pastors want you to do this too. It's a good opportunity and when you support the church, what you do is you provide a safe place where people can hear about the God who loves them. That whatever the circumstances of their own life, whatever people have told them, there is a God who loves them and wants to spend eternity with them. So that's one of the things you do when you support the church. One of the things you do in the, when you support the church is you give them a place to, to, to be encouraged by a community that is trying to put into practice the things that Jesus has told them. If you're going to be my apprentice, then here's what I want you to do. A place where they can be encouraged. You know, a lot of the world, when you try to put these things into practice, they're going to say, see, I told you that Jesus stuff wasn't going to work. But a church is a place where people will actually encourage you and say, well, here's how it has worked for me. Maybe try this. So you get, a, you get an authentic community that will encourage you as you try to put things into practice. And lastly, you get a community that links arms, joins together to be part of something bigger than themselves, to be, to be part of, of an effort 
to bless the people who, who are close to God's hearts, the widows, the orphans, people who are less fortunate than ourselves. And so that's why you should support this church. That's why you should support any church that's trying to do those things. But I don't want to talk about that. I want to talk about the, the deeper idea of stewardship, the idea of stewardship as a posture for living, the idea that, that everything we have is a portfolio of assets that God has entrusted to us. And this means, this means our money, certainly. It means our possessions. It means our time. It means the, the skill set we have, whatever unique skills we've got. It means our, our interests. It means our ideas. It means the, the circle of people that we influence. All these things are something that God has entrusted to us. And the, the thing we want to do as, as uh, managers of these portfolios is to do it well. And we know from Scripture there's one thing we can do, which is to, there's one way we can be sure to do it poorly, and that's to do nothing. Later on in Matthew's Gospel, he gives, he gives um, a, a parable about some managers who were entrusted with assets. Two of them invest them, and they get a return on their assets. But one of them says, I was afraid of you. Um, Edmund, can you show the slide? Because I don't have it quite to memory. There we go. That's it. It went and then it disappeared. So he says, I was afraid of you. So I hid your money in the earth. So we know the one way we can be told we're a wicked servant. The one way for sure is to do nothing. So how can we take the opportunities? Whether they're whether they're scriptural opportunities, whether they're some kind of a religious thing, or just those opportunities we were talking about before. How can we, how can we take, take those opportunities? Well, it turns out there's a reason that we have trouble taking opportunities when they come our way. And the reason is that we are loss-averse. And let me give you a demonstration of that. Let's play a game. Who wants to play this game? I will flip a coin, and if it comes up heads then that's the wrong slide. Um, uh, if it comes up heads, then I will pay you $100. But if it comes up tails, you pay me 50 Okay. Now, who wants to play? All right. right. It's an honest coin, right? But the math, the math is telling you one thing, but your heart's telling you something else, and that's because you're loss averse. What uh, Chip and Dan Heath in their book Decisive, they say, they say that we are at least two and maybe four times as averse to loss as we are attracted toward winning. So, so that's a hard game for a lot of people to play. We don't like to, to play that game. Um, and part of the reason is we are risk averse. Risk averse is kind of the first step toward loss aversion. So risk averse, let's play this game. Imagine playing this game. You're offered a choice of a hundred, I've got numbers up here because it's hard to keep them in your head. So a hundred percent of three thousand dollars, right? You could take, you know, the, the old Monty, Monty Hall game, right? Door one is you have a hundred percent chance of three thousand dollars. But door number two is an eighty percent chance of four thousand dollars. Which door are you going to take? Almost everybody's going to take door one. In fact, 80% of people, given this opportunity, took door one. They want to lock in the winning, right? They don't want the chance of a bigger return because we're risk averse. We don't like the risk. We don't want to take that deal. We'd rather have the $3,000 for sure 
than a chance that a mathematician would tell you is actually a $3,200 value. We don't want that because there's that 20% chance of losing. So 80% of people take this deal. But if we turn it around, this is the amazing thing. What happens if we turn it around? The next slide, please. Suppose instead you have a 100% chance of losing $3,000 versus an 80% chance of losing $4,000. So it's the same deal as before, but you turn it around. Which deal are you going to take? Suddenly, with this deal, everybody's a gambler. They weren't gambling a minute ago, but now they're gamblers. 92% of people offered this deal. Take the, I'll bet on the $4,000 bet. They don't like the locking in their loss because we are loss averse. We're not simply risk averse. We're also loss averse. And because of that, because this is kind of the way that we're made as, as creatures, we don't like loss. And so it makes it hard for us to, to take opportunities. Given an opportunity to, that a friend or, a, or, or some other counselor would tell us, what are you kidding? Call her up. Or, or they'd say, what are you kidding? Jump on that job. Sell that house. Do whatever. Uh, the counselor is not emotionally invested in it. So they have clarity and they can say, do that thing. But we don't. We are loss averse. And so it causes us to miss out on opportunities. I'll do one more, one more game. This is another simple one with a, with a coin flip. So this researcher did something where he said, and I don't know why he picked $9 because it makes the math weird, but, but um, a researcher named Bernoulli did this. He said, imagine a game where there's a coin toss and if heads comes up, then you win, you win $9. But if tails comes up, then you lose $9, right? Pretty straightforward. It's kind of like the other one, but, but the odds are even now, okay? So 50-50 chance of winning or losing. Now, if I give that to people who've got, I, I start out and I say, here's $30. Now let's play a game. If I then make that exact same deal, so you start with $30, you didn't have $30, but now I've given you $30. And we play this game, and heads get you nine, tails you lose, you lose nine. Seventy percent of the people who are offered this take that. Okay? Now, here's the amazing thing. If instead of giving you $30 to start with, I give you nothing, what happens? If you, if you, if we flip the die, uh, flip the coin, and heads comes up, I give you $39. Tails comes up, I give you $21. That's the only difference is you start with zero. The dollars work out exactly the same. Only 43% of people take this game, will play this game. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that amazing? Being staked up front makes it easier to play this game. Even though the dollars are exactly the same. I mean, you know, again, since we're not in the moment, we can look at this and say, well, that's stupid. Why wouldn't everybody take a chance at 21, 100% chance of $21, right? It costs me nothing. Of course I'll take, but people don't. They don't like that idea because they've got nothing and they're afraid to risk. And this is where stewardship comes in. If you view everything you've got as that grub stake, that God has given you that stake so that you can do things with it, so that you can flip coins and get $9, so you can do the things that you think God might be asking you to do, it's actually easier than if you view it as, I don't have anything. You know, I, I would do this for God, except I don't have anything for God. If instead you say, everything I've got is from God, 
I've been given a stake. I'm going to do this. So that's, that's, that's the kind of science. But let me add on a little bit of scripture because that's kind of supposed to be my specialty. You know, I think, I think the reason Peter was able to do this, you know what Peter did not do? He didn't say it's the Lord and jump out of the boat. Later on in John's gospel, he actually does that. But today, he doesn't say it's the Lord and jump out of the boat. Today, what Peter says is, Lord, if it's you, command me. He said, I trust you, but I don't quite trust you. I trust you, but I'm afraid. So he says, Lord, if it's you, command me. And Jesus says, come. And he gets out of the boat, and then you know the story. He starts to sink, and Jesus saves him. So, so if, if the idea that maybe I'm just too emotionally involved, and I need to get a counselor who can tell me, take the risk, it's worth it. Maybe if, 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 I, if that's still not enough for me, maybe the counselor we need to get is Jesus. Maybe we need to say, Lord, it's your stuff. It's your job. It's your career. It's your property. It's your money. Tell me what to do with it. Tell me, should I make this investment? Should I, should I spend it here? Should I play this coin toss game? Say, Lord, command me, because it's your stuff. If you do, you might walk out on water. And the people in the rest of the, the rest of the people in the boat will look at you and say, why didn't I take that opportunity? What opportunities are you going to face this week? What things are staring at you and you're not sure what to do? Imagine if you said, Lord, it's your stuff. Tell me what to do with it. Command me if you want me to get out of the boat. So try that. Try that in your relationships. Try that at work. Try that at the kitchen table. Try that wherever there's an opportunity facing you. This week, say, Lord, it's your stuff. Command me. Tell me what to do with it. You know, I talked about being part of what the church is doing. Two years ago, I got this. This is a certificate. There's a picture of it up there. It says, Permission Giving Certificate. I got this from the bishop, the bishop in the cabinet. He gave me this because, you know what? Churches are loss averse too. When we are given the opportunity to climb out of the boat and join Jesus out there on the water, a lot of us need a little nudge. And so the bishop gave us these. He says, he says, this is permission. It says, the holder of this certificate is given a free pass to experiment or innovate in Christian ministry, especially in the areas of mission field engagement and disciple-making systems with the support of the bishop and the cabinet. So think about why would a bishop need to give those things to his ministers? Why, why would the churches in his area need a permission-giving certificate? Because loss is hard. It's hard for us to risk things. But Jesus is out there in the water, and he's inviting us to come out there with him. So, how can we do that as a church? How can we give ourselves permission to get out of the comfortable boat, the boat that's not very exciting and we won't tell any stories later on, but we won't sink, as opposed to going out there and then having a great story to tell people for the rest of our lives? How can we as a church be about that kind of stewardship? And then how can you as an individual not be as worried about the loss, more willing to take the risk? Lord, 
It's your stuff. Command me. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we give thanks for, uh, for everything. Everything we have is a gift from you. The, the upbringing, the, the talents, the skills, the possessions. Everything we have, Lord, is a gift from you. And we pray you would guide us. Help us to be good stewards of it. Don't, don't, um, don't sit by while we timidly bury it in the ground. Help us to be bold. Help us to take the opportunities that you present to us. Help us to get out of the boat and have an adventure. We pray it all in Christ's name. Amen.